0: and help us to see you clearly and help us to know how much we are loved and God help us to have our hearts open to your word and God I pray that you would also speak through us as he comes and opens the scriptures to us in Christ's name, amen. All right, y'all can be seated. Uh, I have the privilege tonight to introduce to you our main speaker for the week. Uh, It is a man by the name of Russ Whitfield. Russ is a pastor at Grace Mosaic Church in Washington, D.C., which he helped plant. Uh, Russ is also uh, the director of cross-cultural advancement for RUF, Reformed Youth, or sorry, Reformed University Fellowship, and uh, Russ is also a guest lecturer and teacher at RTS Seminary. He just basically does everything. Uh, Also, I think this is really cool. Um, and so I'm just going to say this because I, get to, I have the mic in front of me and I get to talk about this. So in a couple of nights, we're going to sing a song called Heal Us, which um, for some of you may be new. Some of you may have heard it before, but uh, it's an indelible grace song that um, actually our bass player, Lucas, helped write and produce. And Russ actually sang on that song and, uh, and also contributed to a book that was written uh, kind of out of that song called Heal Us, Emmanuel. And Russ is a writer, a teacher, a preacher, a pastor. He kind of does it all. And um, I've gotten to know Russ a little bit over the past year, and he is just an incredible person. And I'll just say this, I've gotten to introduce a few preachers uh, this summer, and I I don't just say this lightly, he's one of the best preachers I've ever heard, and I'm so excited that y'all get to listen to him. So without further ado, give it up for Russ Whitfield. (laughs)
1: Appreciate it, appreciate it. All right, is that better? All right, welcome to Panama City Beach, Laguna, to the promised land. It is good to be together. I'm so glad to be with you. How many of you were uh, with us in Colorado last year? We have a few of you. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, I'm sorry that you have to deal with me again. But I'm back. I'm so glad to be here. I expect every time God's people gather together to hear God's word, I expect big things. Um, I remember when I was your age and what I was doing at your age. And I remember reading a chapter a day to keep the devil away. I I remember growing up in the church, but God rescued me in college. And it is such a sweet thing to see so many of you who know what it's like to be loved by God right now at this age. And I'm also excited to have those of you in here this evening who are still wrestling through some of this stuff and you're still trying to figure out uh, what to do with God and the whole faith thing. We're glad you're here. There is no other place that we'd rather you be than here with us at Laguna Beach in the promised land. Isn't that right, family? Snaps, snaps. Yes. That's awesome. All right. Well, Listen. We're on a tight time uh, schedule because we have to do this two times. So without further ado, I want to get into our scripture passage for this evening from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Sword drill. Y'all know about sword drill? (laughs) First person there say amen. Amen. All right, y'all, quick. All right. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. This is God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. If you would, please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for these students. Thank you for those who are loving these students and leading them now. We pray, God, that you would bless this time, that your spirit would work through your word to meet us, to change us, to open our eyes, to humble us, to animate us and energize us so that we may live the new life. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to not just be hearers of your word, but to be doers of your word. We pray that you would feed us and bless us now. Through the preaching of your word, please, Lord, take my five loaves and two fish and feed your people. I pray in Jesus' name with these friends, and we all say together, amen. Now, my friends who were with me in Colorado last year heard me tell this story, but I want to let some of you in who, who weren't around to hear it. I, about two years ago for Christmas, my family, uh, they were plotting on me, and they bought me a Fitbit. And if you don't know what a Fitbit is, a Fitbit is a a little watch kind of deal. You see I'm not wearing it now, right? Uh, A a Fitbit is a little watch that counts your steps during the day. And this Fitbit is programmed with the requirement of the American Heart Association that says you have to walk 10,000 steps every day in order to have a healthy heart. This is the American Heart Association standard, and Fitbit is programmed with that 10,000 steps in it. And before I got this Fitbit, I had the impression that I was a very healthy person. And so first day, I get my Fitbit on, I put it on, and and I'm doing my normal thing. And I'm starting to get these notifications from this watch. And by the time I get... To the end of the day, it's sending me these little encouragements. And I get to the end of the day and it says, keep going, Russ. You're only 9,000 steps from your goal. I said, stop judging me. I'm a pastor. I read books all day. You see, there was this standard that was built into the Fitbit that said I had to walk a certain amount of steps in order to be a healthy person, in order to have a healthy heart. According to the, to the standard of the American Heart Association. But I kept getting these notifications that I wasn't meeting the standard. So you know what I did? I went into the Fitbit program and I changed the goal and moved it from 10,000 steps down to 1,000 steps. And then I started getting these notifications during the day Go Russ, you're killing it. You have beat your goal by five steps. It, it, It was sending me these encouragements to the day. And I had enough nerve to go home to my wife and say, Babe, I beat my goal today. And on day 30 of beating my goal, I said, 30 days beating the goal. I was pretty proud of myself. But here's the deal. The standard of Fitbit did not suit me. The standard of the American Heart Association did not suit me. And so I just went in. And I changed it. I altered it to a point that it fit my standard, even though I wasn't living up to the the appropriate standard to my own detriment. Now, here's the deal. God has given his people a standard of neighbor love, a standard of cross-cultural love that we need to live into in order to have healthy hearts before God. God has given us a standard of what life in this world is supposed to look like as his people, as his image bearers. And 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 all through the scriptures, we get the notification that we need to keep on going because we're not really hitting the goal, are we? But what we have done all too often is we have gone into the program and we have changed it to suit our own preferences We have often used our own theology to avoid the call to neighbor love. We have used the cultural standards of the day to reinterpret what the scriptures say so that we don't have to love difficult people, so that we don't have to love those people. And we have changed the standard to our own detriment. But here's the deal. This week, we are talking about peace with God. And one of the things that comes with peace with God is peace with one another. And we're going to talk about this theme through a word called reconciliation. Somebody say reconciliation. All right, listen. Once you are reconciled, you are made friends with God through the finished work of Jesus. Through Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension on your behalf. Once you are made a friend of God then you are called to make peace with the people around you, especially the family of faith, but to be a peacemaker in the world. And so we're going to be talking about the ways in which this peace that we have with God begins to refashion and reshape the way we live with the people around us on an everyday basis. And today we're beginning with Luke's gospel, and we're going to talk about neighbor love and reconciliation. Neighbor love and reconciliation. And what we're going to look at is two points as we approach this text. The call to neighbor love and the cost of neighbor love. So let's look at our first point. The call to neighbor love. Now, many of you are familiar with this passage. But we drop into this, this section of scripture and we aren't really given much background. We're all of a sudden dropped into the middle of this encounter that Jesus is having With with a lawyer. And it's not the lawyer kind of job that you think of today. This is a guy who's supposed to be an expert in the Bible. And he's having this encounter with Jesus. And we're brought into the story of this encounter that Jesus has with this lawyer. And the man is asking Jesus the most pressing theological question of the day. And you see it in the text. It was the hot button issue of the day. What must I do? To inherit eternal life. This was the question of the day. And how a teacher answered this question would let the questioner know if they were a, a legit teacher or if they were some kind of faker, if they, if they were outside of the pale of, of good teaching. And so he asked Jesus a question, and Jesus, as he likes to do, returns another question to him. He says, Well, well, how do you read the scriptures? And the man returns back what is the standard understanding of the day. What must a person do to inherit eternal life? The man answers back like a faithful Jew. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And the man is under the impression that he's, he's living up into this. Jesus says, go and do this and you will live. But then, but then the man, he, he pushes Jesus. He pushes Jesus and he says, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus is like, I'm glad you asked. And Jesus lights him up with this powerful story of love, of neighbor love, that is far beyond the bounds of what this man is willing to do. Because here's the deal. Every faithful Jew knew that to love God was to love God's image in the people around you. But there were two primary ways that they were used to avoiding this call to neighbor love. The first was to isolate yourself. And the second was to justify yourself. Let me hit those. The first way to avoid the call to neighbor love, to shrink it down. Was to isolate yourself. In other words, you don't spend any time around the people who are difficult to love. You never run into them. And so you're never faced with the difficult challenge of loving people who are hard to love. Simple as that. The other way that you would avoid the call to neighbor love was by justifying yourself. Look at verse 29. When he says, and who is my neighbor? It seems like an innocent question, right? Who's my neighbor? But Luke, the gospel writer, gives us the man's real intent behind the question. It says, seeking to justify himself. The lawyer is trying to get around the original intent of the call to neighbor love from God by trying to change the definition of neighbor. Do you see this in the passage? He's trying to reduce the demands to what he's currently doing so that he can say, I've done that. Listen, in his mind, everybody couldn't be a neighbor. In his mind, there were certain people who were neighbors and there were certain people who were non-neighbors. Neighbors were well put together people who shared his culture. Who shared his moral sensibilities. People who were like him. Those were neighbors. And then there were those people. They're not neighbors. There were neighbors and there were non-neighbors. Neighbors Neighbors were good and decent folk. Think about it. No doubt on that very day, this lawyer had come across someone who was morally broken. And he was like, hmm, non-neighbor. And then he kept on walking, and he probably came across someone who was a racial other, someone who was racially different from him, and he said, hmm, non-neighbor. And then he came across someone who was poor or someone who was ethnically different from him, and he said, hmm, non-neighbor, you know I'm pretty good at this neighbor love thing. You see what he was trying to do? Anybody can be good at neighbor love if they get to determine who qualifies as a neighbor. I mean, I'm good at basketball, so long as you mean by basketball eating donuts. I'm very good at basketball, also known as eating donuts. If I get to define what it means, then I can shrink it down to whatever I want so that it looks like I'm doing it. But look at what Jesus is going to do. Look at what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to take away his category of non-neighbor. Listen, everyone in here has someone in their mind that they qualify as non-neighbor. It could be the awkward person in your school, the awkward group in your school. They're not popular or successful. They're not the athletes. They aren't the people that are easy to be around. And you say, hmm, Non-neighbor, if you're honest, you look at people who don't look like you. You look at people who speak with an accent, and, and and oftentimes you're tempted to say, hmm. Non-neighbor, hey, I'm pretty good at this. We're all tempted to go there, but look at what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to use a story, and he's going to rock this man's understanding of what neighbor love really is and what the demand of God is for his people. In verses 30 through 33, Jesus moves in on him with this parable. It's a story. A certain man is making this treacherous journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a rough road. It's steep. There are lots of hiding places for for criminals, for robbers to hang out and to jump upon people who don't have anyone with them. At this time, everyone rode with an entourage because it was protection. But in this story, this man is all alone. He's by himself. He's taking this dangerous journey when all of a sudden, he's jumped on. He is attacked. You see it in the text, right? This man is attacked by robbers. He's stripped, he's beaten, he's left for dead. This man in the story doesn't have a theological problem. He has a social problem. He has been attacked, and now he is physically beaten. He has been robbed, and he is in dire straits. He's left, the text says, half dead. And as Jesus' story continues, what you see is a note of optimism because all of a sudden in the story, it's a priest It's the local preacher who comes strolling by and sees the man laying half dead. And we're all expecting that the priest is going to do something about it. He's a religious person. He works in the temple. If anybody ought to be about neighbor love, it's the priest. And the text tells us he moved by on the other side. Now, here's the interesting thing. It doesn't tell us why he didn't do anything about it. It doesn't give us any explanation. It doesn't tell us that the man might have had a good reason. The point that the text is making is simply that he did nothing. It doesn't matter why he did nothing. It doesn't matter if he thought he had a good reason to do nothing. The story that Jesus is telling is simply meant to to shine a negative light on doing nothing in the face of God. Of need doing nothing the point is that he gave no help the story continues another glimmer of hope a Levite another person who was a religious professional this man we're hoping is going to do something but again this man moves by on the other side he avoids contact Now, some interpreters of of the passage suggest that the man stays away because he doesn't know if this dude is dead. And if the dude is dead, then he might be made ritually unclean for his service in the temple. And so he's trying, for good religious reason, to avoid this man here. But what Jesus shows is that he's avoided the weightier matters of the law, the more important things. He thinks he's being religious. He thinks he's doing what God wants, but he doesn't realize in his blindness he has ignored the most important thing, and he passes by. Now things are really bleak, but all of a sudden we're ready for the surprise of Jesus in this text because next we see this, and here's what's important for you to notice in this text. In telling this story, And in laying out the priest and then the Levite first, what Jesus is doing is he's taking the lawyer's theology, his thoughts about God, his thoughts about neighbor love, and he's putting it into story form so that the lawyer can see just how ugly his outlook is. Do you see that? Jesus could have gotten into a discourse back and forth with him and chopped him up theologically and pulled out his systematic theology and bow. Hit him with that. But that's not what he does. He says, let me put your thinking into story form and and show you just how ugly it is, just how selfish it is, just how much cowardice is in your worldview, man. Let me show you what your thinking looks like through a story, Mr. Lawyer. And that's what we get in the priest and the Levite. But then comes the surprise. The text says, Then a Samaritan, and we're all supposed to go, "Ah, a Samaritan? You know who the Samaritans were? Those people. They were those people. They were known as half-breeds to real Jewish people. Because way back many years ago, the way they came together was through an ungodly alliance. And so they were always looked down on. And this is the kind of person that would have been despised by all of the Jewish people. They would have said Samaritan. They had no love for the Samaritans, and yet Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. In other words, he's taken the despised one and making him the hero of the story. The despised person becomes the climax. The despised person comes to the rescue. The despised person outshines the best that the lawyer's tribe had to offer. Do you see that? And by the time the story ends, y'all, the call to neighbor love is landing forcefully upon the lawyer. He's starting to see just how short he falls of God's standard of neighbor love. He tried to make neighbor love into this pocket-sized, manageable thing. And Jesus is showing him that God's vision of love explodes our categories. Everyone that we would keep out is invited in, according to God. Everyone that we would pass over is someone that the Lord would have us pay attention to. You know, there was an article that was once written about homeless folks. And it was interviews with homeless folks, and they were asking, what were some of the most difficult things for them to deal with? And one of the the most difficult things that homeless folks said they had to deal with was the sense of being invisible, like no one saw them. And what you have to realize is that there are so many people in your life So many people in your schools, so many people on your teams and in your clubs who feel invisible. They are not noticed. And Christians are to be the kind of people, the church is to be the kind of place where there are no invisible people, everyone is seen. And valued no matter what they struggle with, no matter what their sin issues may be, no matter what their fears, no matter what their shame, no matter what their challenges. Everyone is to be visible according to God's vision of his people. Here's the question that comes to us. We saw how the priest responded. We saw how the Levite responded. And we saw how the Samaritan responded. But the more important question is, how do you respond when you encounter needy, hurting, broken people in your life? How do you respond? And remember, the whole genesis of the question was, how do I inherit eternal life? And then Jesus begins to show this man the kind of life that demonstrates that one knows God and loves God and understands what it means to be loved by God. This is what faith looks like in action. This is what eternal life looks like in the right now. It shows up in this kind of love. And that is the sobering thing about this passage. How do we respond? How do you respond? Do you avoid? Do you avoid the people? Do you come up with a story? I think there are three primary reasons, three primary emotional responses out of which we operate. Anger, shame, and fear. Okay? Some people, when they encounter someone in need, it makes them mad. This person doesn't have their stuff together. Now they're imposing on my life. If they they, they would just take care of their business, if they would just be responsible, if they would just try a little harder, then they wouldn't be imposing on my life. Some people respond in anger. Some people res- respond out of shame. And here's how that works. When you live out of shame, you spend so much of your time, so much of your time trying to do things, trying to accomplish things that will cover your sense of shame. Maybe you just do a bunch of activities and you try to excel. Maybe you just study really hard and you try to get good grades because you're trying to use your grades and you're trying to use your athletic performance to cover your deep sense of shame. And whenever someone gets in the way of you covering your shame, it, it, it makes you all of a sudden start scrambling. I don't have time for you. I'm too busy trying to cover my shame. I'm too busy trying to get rid of that terrible feeling I have inside that I have no worth at all except when I'm accomplishing things or except when I'm doing good. Some people respond out of fear. Some people respond out of fear. They look at that person who's hurting and they say, what's going to happen to me if I go and help them? What if I get caught up in their stuff? What if it blows back on me? I think those are the three primary emotional responses that we have when we encounter someone in need. See that fly? The devil's busy today. Y'all see that? Flies attacking me. i going to mess up my sermon. <laughs> All right, look. We're seeing, are you starting to see the call to neighbor love? Are you starting to get a sense of it? Do you see it in this story? You see what Jesus is doing with the man? All right, now let's look at the second point the cost of neighbor love. And this begins in verse 33. Jesus says in his story when the Samaritans saw him, the man who, was, who, had, who had been attacked, he had compassion. And then look, there are, there are six. Concrete ways in which neighbor love shows up in this story. Six concrete actions of the Samaritan. One, he comes up to him. Two, he dresses his wounds, tearing his own clothes to make bandages. Three, he anoints the cuts with oil and wine to address the wounds, and he deprives himself of refreshment in order to provide for this man. Five, four, sorry, four, four, four. He loads the man on his own mule. He goes without relief in order to provide for this man. The whole rest of the journey, he's walking while the man is on his mule. Five, he takes him to an inn. He doesn't leave him where he finds him. And six, he provides care and comfort to the man. He doesn't just dump him and leave he provides enough payment for the man to be taken care of. He assumes total costs, enough for 24 days for this man to recuperate. Verse 36, here's, here's the final line from Jesus, the, the, the punch line. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? The answer The lawyer can't even say the Samaritan. He can't even get it out of his mouth. He says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Here's the deal. We start with the wrong idea when it comes to neighbor love. This is how we begin. We say, how can I undergo as little change as possible to my life and my amenities and do what Jesus wants me to do? How can I do what Jesus wants me to do without having to give up anything? How can I love neighbor in such a way that it doesn't cost me or I don't have to make any adjustments to my life? And the answer to those questions is this. You can't. You can't love your neighbor like God calls you to love your neighbor and not change your life and not endure any costs. And not undergo any sacrifice. And not have any life alteration. That is impossible. You see, this wholehearted devotion that Jesus says is required in order to love your neighbor. And when we think about who we are and how we tend to deal with people, it should cause us to tremble. You hear the rebuke of Jesus to our tame, sluggish, Americanized, bare minimum approach to neighbor love, which is just an expression of our small love for God. That's what you see in this text. And once you clearly hear the call to neighbor love, then you begin to appreciate the cost. And you rightly ask yourself this. How can anyone... Do this. How can anyone love their neighbor like Jesus says we're supposed to love our neighbors? How can anyone get to the point that they are willing to to pay the costs and to endure the sacrifices and to alter their life? How can this be done? And friends, here's the good news of God's grace. And here is the power for you to love your neighbors. You have to realize that you were the neighbor who was loved. You were loved by Jesus in this way. You have to appreciate the fact that it was you and I who were laying on the side of the road. After the fall of humanity into sin, when we had rushed headlong into sin through our own bad decisions, through the attacks of our evil enemy, the devil, we were half dead on the side of the road. There was no hope, and we were without peace. But the great conjunction of the Christian faith is, but God. Once you hear, but God, you know that everything is about to be different. And the great, the great change that happened was that when God looked on you, when Jesus looked on you, he did not say, non-neighbor. He did not look at you in your sin and brokenness and weakness and idolatry and foolishness and selfishness and say non-neighbor. Because if Jesus had treated you like you treat other people, you would be lost forever. But the good news of God's grace is that he does not love like we do. He is not like us. His thoughts are above our thoughts and his ways beyond our ways. And when you come to see that this story is all about the way that Jesus loves you and you and you and you and y'all and the the multitude through the ages and around the globe who were broken down with no hope, that's where you begin to get the power, the resources to change. Only this kind of love can make you a neighbor-loving person. It takes the love of a king in order to make us a kingdom people that loves neighbor. This is the beauty of what we see in the gospel. Because as we look at the story, we are longing for someone to love this dying man. And it is a similar thing when you think of the host of heaven watching the fall of humanity headlong into sin thinking, who will love these dying people? And then the surprise of all surprises is that the God you despised, the one who was smitten and afflicted, the one from whom people hid their faces, the prophet Isaiah says, is the one who becomes the climax of the story. That's Jesus. Jesus is the greater Samaritan who has loved us. And now we are called... Based upon the way he has loved us in the gospel. Based upon the way that he has has cared for us in the gospel. He has moved toward us. Think about how Jesus did it. It shows up in the steps of the Samaritan. He came to us. He dressed our wounds. He anoints us with his spirit. He, He bears us up and carries us. He provides for our ongoing care. He supports us even to the very end. And here's the deal. I'm going to close with this. When you think about how it is that you should work this out, how should you think about this? You need to first begin with the logic of the gospel. Anytime you encounter someone who's difficult to love, someone who's different from you, you're not used to them. It's going to be awkward. I want you to think about the gospel. And if Jesus had used your logic, where would you be? First, first application is you must use gospel logic in order to break down all of your apprehension for loving your neighbor. Think about it. How, how often do we say, oh, but we don't have anything in common. I mean, like, you know, like, they're, they're different. <laughs> Imagine if Jesus said, Father, I mean, we don't have anything in common. Like, I'm holy, they're not. I'm righteous, they're not. I'm amazing, they're terrible, we have nothing in common. But no, he doesn't use that logic, and, and you can't either after you know his love. Think about it oh, it's just gonna be so awkward, you know? Like, it's gonna be weird, like, we don't even have anything to talk about. Like, I don't even know. Like, Jesus to the Father Father, it's gonna be so awkward, like, I'm gonna show up in all my glory, and they're gonna be like, oh, you know, like, it's gonna be awkward, Father, but no, he doesn't use these excuses. Use your gospel logic and ask the question, if Jesus had treated me like I want to treat this person, where would I be? And then and then say, thank you, God, that Jesus did not use excuses to avoid loving me. He had every reason to avoid loving me, but he didn't look for excuses. He looked for the opportunity, and he took it. And I am rescued because of that. Gospel logic. Second, you must think about, Listen, listen, the first thing that that we are tempted to do when we wake up in the morning is to look at our to-do list. You wake up in the morning, oh, I got to do this, oh, I got to do that, oh, I can't forget to do this. That's not the most important question of the day. What do I have to do? The most important question of the day is this, who must I become in light of the love of God for me? You must think more about becoming than doing, because if you focus on who you're becoming— The to-do list will get sorted out. Who must you become as a result of the love of God for you? You must become more sacrificial. You must become more gracious and gentle. You must become less anxious, less fearful because of who you know and who knows you, because of who your father is. Who must I become? What do the promises and the power and provision of God allow me to become? That's, that's two. Think about becoming overdoing. Third, look at your calendar and pray. Now, here's the deal. If I say, Yes, I love blank people, but you look at my calendar and you don't see anywhere in the last five years or in the coming season those people in my schedule, what will you conclude? Do I really love those people? No, you have to plan for it. Look at your schedule. Let your schedule tell the story. If you want to do a better job, if you want to grow in the grace of the Lord with respect to neighbor love, then make plans for it. Say, you know what? Once a month, I'm going to have a party at my house. I'm going to ask my parents to buy some chips, and we're going to get a movie, and I am intentionally going to invite two or three people that I would not normally invite Or, you know, we're going to go play a pickup game of soccer or basketball or whatever, and not basketball, Russ Whitfield style, eating donuts. It could be that. Um, But we're going to go play a pickup game, and I'm going to intentionally invite some folks that I wouldn't ordinarily invite. And I'm going to make my my goal to get them connected in, in my circle of friends. Plan for it. Get it into your calendar and be honest. Your calendar tells the story of who you're becoming and what you care about and where your values show up. At the end of the day, remember that you are the loved neighbor, those of you who have trusted in Jesus, who have come to own him as your rescuer, those of you who know that your only hope in life and in death is that you belong, body and soul, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And for those of you who, this hasn't been your story up till now, I want you to see something tonight. We all who claim to be Christians know what it's like to be broken down on the side of the road, half dead. And what God is telling you tonight is that that's a picture of where you stand apart from God, apart from Jesus. But the good news is that Jesus is the kind of Savior who loves to draw near to broken down people on the side of the road. So would you look to him and say, I can't rescue myself. I can't help myself. Would you help me? Would you save me? And this is an invitation to you, a call to you to take seriously what it means to know God. It's coming with your empty hand. It's coming with your nothing and getting his everything. That's the Christian faith. Coming to God with your nothing and laying hold of his everything in the gospel in the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ. That's the invitation to you tonight. But for the rest of the week, think on these things. Grab a friend to talk with about this. Grab maybe one of the youth leaders and, 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 and engage with them. There's nothing more important than this this week. So let's take these things to heart for the rest of the week as we consider reconciliation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these students. Bless the rest of this week with your grace. And help us, Lord, to own our call and our identity as your people, to love our neighbors in the way that you have loved us. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.